Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we do lift up Tony to you and ask for your healing hand to be on him. And Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, would you give protection and comfort and direction, guide them and use them mightily. Lord, right now as your children throughout the world cry out to you for Afghanistan, we pray that you would do amazing things there, that you would bring dreams and visions of Jesus to those Muslims who are seeking to know the truth so that they could find you. And Lord, uh, now as we open your word, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to show us where your word needs to change the way that we think and the way that we respond to situations. So Lord, may this message this morning be something that we take with us, that, that we just don't hear the Sunday and go on with our lives, but something that does its transforming work in our very souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, we are in Galatians chapter 5. If you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scripture. And right today, you happen to have joined us in Galatians chapter 5 from verse, I'm just going to do four verses this morning, uh, 13 through 16 in Galatians chapter 5. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our study in the letter to the Galatians has emphasized all the way throughout that salvation is by grace alone, and it comes through faith alone. The law was our guardian pointing people to Christ. And, but now that he has come, now that the Messiah has come and the Spirit's been given to all who believe, we are to be led by the Spirit. Our justification with God comes to us by faith in what Jesus has done for us. It is a finished work. Hallelujah. Amen. Paul has told us that we should be experiencing this freedom that is ours in Christ. He explained that freedom is freedom from this present evil world. That's chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 2, verse 20, he shared that he was free to die to himself and let Christ live in him. In chapter 3, he declared that we are free from the laws of Moses and their judgment and their condemnation. That's 3.13. And we are even adopted as sons who can put on Christ that mantle of authority and maturity. That's in 327 and 4, 4, and 5. Because all this is true for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's saying if all these things are true for you, 
then why in the world are you thinking you need to be circumcised? It's like taking a giant step backwards. Did they really think that they could add something to what Jesus had done for them on the cross? As I thought about this, I was just contemplating the, this whole meaning in Galatians in my mind, and this little uh, Dr. Zeus-like poem came to me. O creature of dust, how you think that you must do it all on your own to the wind you have sown. But if you will abide in his wounded side, his strength it will do, for it's him and not you. Amen. So now the letter turns in, in this point that we are in verse 13 in Galatians chapter 5. It turns to our sanctification in daily life and by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Right? By this I mean the working out of salvation that we already have in the way that we live in this fallen world. Verse 15 for if you were called to freedom, brothers, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So from this point on in this letter, Paul turns to the solution that's going to keep them on track, running that race of to the finish. And some commentators refer to this last portion of Galatians as the ethical portion of the letter. So Paul begins this section by reminding them that we are called to freedom. You know, in America, we think of that as, well, we've got the Bill of Rights and, and the freedoms the Constitution gives us. But biblical freedom is the rights we have as adopted children of God. We're free to yield to the Spirit and liberated from our enslaving old nature its rules, all the rules that were meant to keep it in check. That does not mean that we can break the moral boundaries that relate to the nature of God, such as lying, stealing, adultery, murder, and so forth, but we're freed from religious rituals and societal rules of na the nation of Israel. You know, that's one reason Christians chose to worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, and it's the first day, it's a new beginning. Pentecost came on Sunday, and so they stepped out of that law, you know, the rule, Saturday. From Friday, the first vision of the two stars, the, till Saturday evening when you see two stars, you can't do anything, right? They stepped out of that and said, hey, this is a new beginning in Christ. We're going to worship on Sunday when he rose from the dead, because he gave us new life. He gave us resurrected life. And so they started worshiping on Sunday. That's an illustration of this freedom that comes in Christ. That's why Peter, referring to the law, said, Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? The sacrifices in the Old Testament and the 613 rules of behavior are all replaced by the Spirit of God living in our hearts, which is a much higher level than the law. 
The law was given to us for our good, but the Spirit gets at the heart of God that's behind the laws that were given. The Christian life is neither the life of legalism nor the life of license. Living by the Spirit isn't a path between the law and licentiousness or total freedom, but rather it's on another plane altogether. Think of it like this. Good parents give their children chores and rules to do, to help them grow, to help them mature, to help them have responsibility, also to keep them safe. You know, don't run out in the street and, and don't run around with that knife in your hand and so forth. But what if the child knew in his heart the heart of his parents? Now, none of us ever had children like that, did we? <laughs> because children will be children. They don't instinctively know what's good for them. But if they could, there would be no need for rules. That perfect child would always act in a good way that would please their parents because they would know the heart of their parents. In a similar way, the Spirit gives us the heart of God, causing us to act in ways that are pleasing to Him. And as we see in the next verse, the Spirit helps us to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the love of Christ through us. It's not what we work up in ourselves or try hard to do. It's his love flowing through us. And that's the second great command. It's the Father's will, and it's what's best for all. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul warns them and all who read the letter that being freed from the law doesn't mean free to yield to the old nature, to run out of bounds. Grace does not set us free to sin, but sets us free from sin. It's the freedom to serve others through love. And when the old nature reigns over us, we, we, we just can't break free from that selfishness. It's like an immature child who tries to get out of those chores and skirt all their, his parents' rules. Um, he may love his parents, but he loves himself more. And he may know what their will is, but he has his own will. We see a need, but we harden our hearts, and we end up doing what we want. We think we're free, but we're really enslaved to selfishness. And that damages relationships. It's one reason for the destruction of societies. It's the reason idealistic philosophies don't work. It's the reason communes fall apart in time. So many people talk of altruism and think how wonderful we, we can create this idealistic society on the earth if we just, and then they have all the ways that rules and then they try to do it and then they add to have more rules and then then they have to add more, and finally it just blows up. They think, if everyone was just generous toward me. It's humorous, but at the same time, it's sad that some of the greatest proponents of these idealistic societies never worked a day in their lives and have a terrible record of giving. They don't consider the biblical truth that the heart of man is desperately wicked. That's because they think so highly of themselves. 
Community is only possible when people are united in their goal and put others above themselves. That's what the Spirit frees us to do. And when Jesus reigns in our hearts, we can serve one another and we can find joy in, in the giving. He frees us from ourselves. We're freed from those chains of selfishness more fully described in verses 19 to 21. And we find that we can freely live in a way that's pleasing to the heart of God. And that gives us this deep sense of joy. We can serve one another without any other motive than just love. And that's a rare thing in the world. It shows that Jesus has truly made a difference in our hearts. Paul's paraphrasing this verse really is paraphrasing uh, Jesus' words, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Jews were waiting for a single law at the, at the time of Christ. And that, that's why they often... You know, sometimes in the Gospels you read, Master, what is the most important law? Because that's, that's what they were seeking at that time. They knew that there was someday coming a universal law that would sum up the whole thing. And Jesus gave them that. Love God with all and your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do the one without the other. So really it is one. It's the one that they were seeking. The world in which... This is lived out by all who are in it is called Sedona. No, <laughs> it's called heaven. Amen. As long as we're on the earth and man is here, it's not going to be working right. But in heaven, it will be totally that way. Everyone will be serving one another in love. But we can bring a bit of heaven to earth when we live it out here. We bring heaven to our church when we live it out among ourselves. And when we don't, we find the next verse to be true. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Bite and devour. Pretty savage words, aren't they? But they're very appropriate terms. Uh, I had lunch a week ago with... Uh, Pastor Ken Nichols, and he was telling me about a fishing trip in Canada, way up on one of the real northern lakes, and they're fishing for pike, and he's pulling in this great big pike, and he gets it almost to the boat, and a bigger pike eats the whole thing. <laughs> Rips it off his line, swallows it. That's the kind of ugliness Paul's describing when a critical spirit is given free reign. There are such beings as Christian cannibals, in a spiritual sense, of course. If love doesn't prevail in a church, our flesh nature will destroy the sense of community. I've seen couples and individuals who had enjoyed fellowship and they talked about how great the church was and how they loved it here, but then turned critical because something didn't go their way, the way they wanted. And they quit loving the body and speaking well of them because no one got on board with their agenda or would make the changes they wanted. And they admitted they couldn't worship here anymore and they had to go somewhere else. 
That's because they no longer love the body. And when you can't love and prefer others above yourself, you really can't worship. When those with the same gripes get together, a faction forms, and it's listed in next week's sermon, we'll look at the works of the flesh, and one of them is factions. Instead of being in unity, a faction will form, and then, you know, as others join, the testimony of the church is hurt, and sometimes the church will split, and sometimes it's completely destroyed. The biting and devouring can happen on both sides of any issue. If we cannot speak well of someone, we shouldn't say anything at all. Amen? Boy, if we could just live this, huh? It's hard. It's really hard, especially when you've been wounded and somebody starts talking about the person that wounded you, you, you want to chime right in and say, yeah, yeah, that guy, you know, tell your story. We should be praying for them instead and for ourselves to see where we may be in the wrong. Love should never stop. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love cares and tries to understand others. That's the spirit at work in us. Forgiving, having patience with, bearing with. Yet we all struggle with our old nature, the flesh. We're waiting for that final deliverance when our unredeemed humanness will bother us no more. Amen? That's the hope that lies before us. But we need to be working in that direction with all our might today. Amen? To let that spirit reign in us. The flesh, I'm going to quote a big section from a sermon by Pastor Todd Wilson because it's, I just thought it was so perfect. The flesh is the sworn enemy of relationships and community. Self-centered passions and desires are what wreck all the havoc on our relationships. And the flesh is always looking for a beachhead in our lives, which can then become a base of operations from which the flesh can work to undermine every single one of our relationships, whether with God or with our spouse or with our children, our employer, our neighbor, a roommate, or classmate. The flesh is utterly ruthless. I think Sometimes I think we forget how ruthless it is, how destructive it is. And it will seize every opportunity we give it. It's always with us and in the world around us, always encouraging us to let down our defenses and let it gain ground. In what ways do we give the flesh an opportunity to establish a beachhead, a base of operations in our lives? You know, um, in Ephesians chapter 4, it, tells, it says, do not give the devil an opportunity. It lit in NIV, it says foothold, because the word in Greek is tapas, and it literally means a little space. You know, if you give him a little space, it is a foothold for him to get in and to start wreaking that havoc. In what ways do we give the flesh an opportunity to establish that beachhead, that space? Here are some of the most common. We provide for the opportunity for the flesh when we coddle an unforgiving spirit or harbor a grudge toward another person. Unforgiveness is a poison, but the person you're refusing to forgive isn't drinking it, you are. 
We provide opportunity for flesh when we fail to overlook minor offenses. As fallen, sinful human beings, we continually throw pebbles into one another's path. That's inevitable, but Proverbs 19.11 says it's wisdom to overlook an offense. It is wisdom to overlook an offense. And yet, because our flesh is so vain and proud, it's easily offended, often by the slightest little thing, and I would add sometimes by total just misunderstanding. We provide opportunity for the flesh when we allow ourselves to put a negative spin on the actions of others. In that magnificent celebration of love found in 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle says that love believes all things. Sometimes um, it's, you, you know when, Maybe you've experienced this when you're talking to someone and they're looking at a situation and looking at it as negatively as they can. And you're going, well, maybe it really means this. Oh, no, it's, it's all negative and dark. Well, take step back and look at it. You can interpret it. Oh, no. And you go, it's painful. We provide opportunity for the flesh when we indulge ourselves in speaking negatively about others. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's James 4.11. And Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such thing is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give, give grace to those who hear. It is in view of passages like these that Dietrich Bonhoeffer came up with the following bold conclusion. Thus, it must be a decisive rule of all Christian community life that each individual is prohibited from talking about another Christian in secret. That's wisdom. Why? As he says, often we combat our evil thoughts, the flesh, most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be verbalized. He then offers this encouragement. Where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the start, individuals will make an amazing discovery. They will be able to stop constantly keeping an eye on others and judging them they can now allow other Christians to live freely just as God has brought them face to face with each other. We provide an opportunity for the flesh when we engage in conversation with, with those who are negative or when we continue a conversation when the conversation turns negative. Conversations can turn negative in various ways as soon as one of those, res those respectable little vices of the tongue shows up on the scene. Things like gossip, critical speech, harsh words, insults, sarcasm, ridicule. We also frankly need to avoid negative people. Even so, though some believers are chronically negative, they consistently spew criticism or harsh words or sarcasm. As a result, it's tough to be around them without coming away feeling oily or dirty, as if someone had, somehow we've been defiled. 
Pray for those folks. Seek to build them up in love. But as a rule, avoid going out to coffee with them. Unless, of course, the Holy Spirit gives you an assignment to try to turn every conversation into a positive. I know some people with that gift. We provide opportunity for the flesh when we fail to deal with our personal grievances swiftly and directly. In Ephesians 4, we find the instruction, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or your anger. But notice what Paul adds, and this is the verse I quoted before, don't give an opportunity or a foothold to the devil. When we are slow to deal with our personal grievances, we give not only the flesh, but the devil himself an opportunity to make inroads into our lives and into our communities. We must deal with personal grievances swiftly. Don't let them fester. But we also need to deal with them directly, that is person to person, and whenever possible, face to face. Here's where we all need to be much more cautious about using technology. Email uh, or texting net is not the place to confront someone because it's so impersonal. All you have is the, the heading with the person's name instead of their face or their voice. Do it in person if you can't do it in person by phone. And if that doesn't possible, a handwritten letter. It's far too easy to dehumanize that person when, they're, when we're not in connection with them. I've, that's the end of the quote. I've witnessed this destructive power of criticism tear churches apart. If there's a real problem with facts that are serious, you, like he just said, Pastor Wilson just said, take it to that person. That's the Matthew 18 approach. Take it to that person. If he won't hear you, Bible says, take another witness. Look for a godly person who's impartial to come and kind of be a mediator. And if that doesn't work and there's still obvious blatant sin, then take it to the elders. The scripture says, take it to the church. I think he means through the elders of the church. This is the way Jesus told us to deal with offenses, the biblical way. One thing that I learned lament is the lack of dedication to one another in the church body. We tend to be our, in our little cliques and know little of anything about others in the congregation. You know the people you hang out with and you like to hang out with them because they have similar interests or they're close in age, but we're a body, right? And we all need to get to know one another. It's so great. Uh, when Dick and Jean come to the young adults group on uh, Wednesday night. We love having them there. And that's what we need to do. We need to mix it up so we get to know one another and understand each other, recognizing our needs and, and just learning to love one another. We need to live that analogy of a church being a body. We all need one another. It just baffles me when people commit to a church and then just walk away with, with no explanation, like amputating a finger just because you feel like it. Who cares what the effect is on the rest of the body and what happens to the missions they support and so forth? If you're truly called to some other body of believers, let us know. 
We'll throw a party and send you off with our love. And that has happened a number of times where someone, whether through ministry or just a move or whatever, and we, we want to send you off and with love and care and appreciation. Do you know the missions we support? There's about a dozen of them. And part of the failure is on our part as elders. We need to share with you more about the incredible missions this church supports because they are amazing. In fact, in upcoming uh, calls to worship, we're going to make an effort to introduce you further to the missions that we work with um, because you're a big part of it as you give. And you'll be blessed to know what they do. Have you ever written them a letter of encouragement or complimented them on their social media? The blessing of a small church is that we have the opportunity to live this out. Larger churches have very little real community unless, it, unless they have good small groups. My challenge to all of us is to get to know others in the church, get to know our missions, find out their background, learn if they have any real need you might be able to help with. And while you might not be able to connect with all the missions, just pick a couple of them and get to really know who's in it and write them a letter now and then. Let them know you're praying for them. Stay up with their progress and encourage them. Let the love of Christ flow through you to others in the church and to our missionaries. Let us adopt Bonhoeffer's suggestion to say nothing negative about anyone. If we think someone's struggling, let's encourage them and pray for them. If someone has a weakness, come alongside them and help them. Get to know and love one another because that's pleasing to the Father. That fulfills all the law. That's walking in the Spirit. Verse 16, but I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired description of life in Christ that's free from the bondage of the law or of the flesh. It's the answer to the sinful nature that we had crucified with Christ when it raises its ugly head out of the coffin. The word walk in this verse means to tread all around or be occupied with something. In other words, we are to do all that we do in the spirit instead of our old nature. Only a spiritful person can do that. So first, we need to know Christ and be filled with his spirit. And only the man or woman who is dependent moment by moment on the life of Christ in them can continually walk in the spirit. Try to do it on your own and you'll soon find yourself in the flesh. We must be looking unto Jesus while praying without ceasing, with our minds renewed by the word of God. We must rely on the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit if we're to live our passage for today. The Greek on this particular verse, can you put the verse back up? Is really emphatic. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will absolutely no way gratify the desires of the flesh. That's the, that's the sense of the Greek. It's very powerful. Anything that takes you away from walking in the spirit is wrong. 
This tells us that if we see ourselves yielding to those desires, we know we're not walking in the Spirit. Paul's insisting that we understand the Spirit's enabling power that's stronger than the desires of the flesh. We know how powerfully the flesh tempts us, but the power of the Spirit is stronger. We can realize that power if we just choose to walk in the Spirit. Follow Jesus moment by moment, step by step. Only the ones who have received the forgiveness of Je that Jesus merited for us on the cross can ask for and receive the Holy Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is simply yielding to his life in you instead of doing your own thing. And the more we let him be our guide and saturate our minds with the word of God and pray without ceasing, the more it will become our new way of life our regular way of life. That's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And why fear and trembling? It's because we know how easily we can fall back into that old nature and how destructive it is. Brothers and sisters, let's walk in the spirit and love one another, amen? That is not the road between works on one hand and indulgence on the other. It's an altogether higher road. Martin Luther said it so well. Each of us should become a Christ to the other. And as we are Christ to one another, the result is that Christ fills us all and we become a truly Christian community. That'll make wayside a little island of heaven on earth. It'll draw others to Jesus, but most of all, it'll please the heart of the Father who gave us everything and who longs to see us eternally blessed. Amen.